Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Good morning. Good to be up here again preaching the Word of God, bringing the gospel to the church. Appreciate the opportunity from Justin. He was on a, a cruise this week, and he asked me to fill in for him. This time he gave me three months instead of a week, so a little bit different, but I'm glad to be here. Glad to be here. Um, let's see. All right, what we're going to be looking at today is uh, the last couple, uh, I think three or four times I preached over the last year or so, we sort of did a, a series on uh, Paul's prayer to the Thessalonians. There's maybe three or four different sermons over that time period. And what we're going to do today is look at his second prayer uh, for these people in 2 Thessalonians 1, 11 through 12. So if you can open your Bibles there, please, to first Th- 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 through 12. Unfortunately, this is a rather uh, easy prayer. It's much simpler than the previous one. So we'll cover the whole thing uh, in, in our lesson today. There's a lot less background we have to go through in order to understand uh, this prayer. But there is some background uh, that we'll go through. But let me read the prayer first, and then we'll, we'll begin. He says this, to this end, we also pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, there are basically two, peti- uh, two petitions here uh, and, and one result. Now, some background to this prayer. Uh, there's a quite a bit of background to the first prayer that we don't have time to get into today. If you want that, go back and listen to the previous lessons in 1 Thessalonians 3, 9 through 13. But, but there is some background here that we can look at. Uh, remember, uh, first of all, that uh, Paul has a bit, went to Thessalonica to, to build a church there. And this is Acts 17. And Paul had to flee at the inception of that church because of, of persecution. And so he leaves that church, uh, leaves in there under the, the, the threat, under the withering threat of persecution. Uh, they're untrained. They're, he hadn't spent the time with them that he normally would do with the church to build them up into faith. And he comes back, I think he settles in Ephesus, and he, he wonders about church. He worries about what's happening with that church. He's, he's uh, concerned about it. He fears the church has actually been, been wiped out. So then he sends Timothy back to that church to find something about the church. He says, well, we could, could stand it no longer, he says, I sent Timothy uh, to find out about you and, and to build you up and to strengthen and supply what is lacking. And then Timothy comes back and he reports to Paul that not only has the church survived, but that church has thrived. Uh, their church that is expressing both love and faith. And so Paul uh, rejoices at that time. He says, what thanks can we give to God for what he has done through you? And then he goes into a, a prayer for these people. Uh, and he prays a, a couple things for them. One, he prays, first of all, that he would be able to come and, and visit them, return to them and visit them to finish what is lacking, to build them up in his faith, to be personally present with them. And then he also prays that that their love would increase, it would overflow and abound, he says, uh, to, to to you and to all those who are outside. So the church and the outside world would experience this overflowing, abounding love that comes from the hand of God through the hearts of the people. Now, if we jump to the opening chapters of this book of 2 Thessalonians, we find out that Paul's 
prayer in the first book was actually answered. God granted what he wanted uh, without Paul even going there to minister to them. He says this, that there was an increase basically, uh, uh, where is it at? Increase and a, a increase in your faith and your love for one another. He says this, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love for each one of you towards one another grows even greater. So those two things that Paul prayed for, that their faith would increase and their love would overflow and abound. He says, it's happened. He says, your faith is greatly enlarged. That idea there, it's a, it's a wonderful increase, a wonderful growth in something. It's what's called a hapex legomena. It means it only appears once in all of the New Testament, but it's a wonderful grow, an increase that, that's delightful. If you drive by the, uh, these big uh, fields of corn here, and you've noticed over the month or so how they've grown, uh, you would say it was a wonderful increase in that corn, the bounty of that corn. After a, a couple uh, rainy days and nice sunny afternoons, you need to make come in and say, my garden has, has wonderfully grown. It's, it's a blessing. You wouldn't use this uh, to describe the green mold growing on your chicken parmesan that you wanted to heat up that night for supper. It, it, it's a blessing. It's something that's good, that, that is delightful. So their faith has grown. It's been enlarged. And Paul rejoices without even a visit. Uh, that this has happened. So this sort of sets the wider context uh, for what Paul is writing, but there's a narrower context as well that we need to understand. Uh, and that is indicated by the first two words of this prayer, and that is to this end. Notice how he begins the word with the phrase to this end. Now, th there's a better way to translate this. This is pretty much exact word for word translation. But the NIV translates this with this in mind. And it's a very good way to translate it because what Paul is saying here is that what I've just said in the previous verses of 4 through 10, uh, I'm taking that. And as I offer this prayer to you, that is what is on my mind. That what I've just said is shaping and forming this prayer that I'm offering before God on your behalf. So the question is, what did Paul say in his previous verses that is affecting this prayer? Now, we don't have time to go through the whole thing or spend much time, but there's a couple ideas here that we can see are being brought forward into this prayer. First of all, he starts off by reminding them of the importance of their suffering. As Paul uh, writes to the Thessalonians, as he thinks about them and he prays about them, their suffering is constantly on his mind, it seems. It's overwhelming him. And many times that bursts through in his letters to the Thessalonians. And that's what's happening here. He reminds them of the importance of their suffering, that they are suffering for the kingdom of God, that their suffering is making them worthy of the kingdom of God, he says. is Therefore, we ourselves speak proudly among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. This is a plain indication. In other words, this is what your, your suffering is doing. It's a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. So he reminds them that the suffering that they're undergoing, uh, that they're suffering for the kingdom of God and they are su their suffering will be used to show that they are worthy of that kingdom. Next, he points out what will happen when Christ returns. He points them to the future, to when Christ returns. He says, when Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in a flaming fire. Now, when Christ returns, Paul says, two things are going to happen. 
One is that there's going to be judgment that comes upon those who are afflicting you. God will repay affliction with affliction upon those who are causing your suffering. He says this, for this is only, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he, that is Jesus, uh, returns to be glorified in his saints on that day. Now, Paul is speaking very boldly here uh, of the judgment that is going to come upon him. He's not saying, well, we need to, to pray for their salvation. We need to have compassion towards these people. That, that, that's partially true, but he reminds them to comfort them that God is going to bring retribution, a, a strong, powerful retribution upon these people who are causing you suffering. And that's not to make them fear or worry. It's to make them comforted, to give them comfort, that knowing that this will happen. So this is the first thing that will happen on that day when Christ returns. The second is, is that they will find relief from their suffering. Paul does not promise them at some unknown time between now and the return of Christ, your suffering will be over. He's not saying, God, at some time in the future, before he returns, maybe a week, maybe a month, a year, don't worry, he's going to relieve your suffering. Paul offers no hope in that whatsoever. His hope is, is that when Christ returns, then your suffering will be relieved. Then you will find relief in your suffering. So he gives them no hope that God will remove this suffering at some time in your life. He fully expects them to live a life till the very end of their days or Christ's return and suffer through that time period. Now, God may remove it as he's done many times in church history, or it may exist until they pass away or the Lord returns. The hope, he puts, is in the return of Christ, not some unspecified day where the suffering is relieved. And he's setting a, a contrast here between two groups of people, those who reject the gospel and those who believe the gospel and persevere and the destiny of those people. For one, it will be a day of eternal destruction, but for the Thessalonians, it will be a day of inexpressible blessings. Uh, the best way to explain uh, the way Christ will be received by his people is by way of illustration. Um, uh, think of a great, glorious city uh, that has been conquered by an evil world. Now, now, if Justin was here, he'd insert the appropriate Lord of Rings illustration, but I'd have to reread the books and learn all the names and how to pronounce them. But imagine a city uh, that has been taken over by a, an evil, wicked king, a peaceful city uh, uprooted by this king, and he takes it over. Uh, many of the citizens... Resist, but most of the people go along with this evil king and participate in his evil. Uh, those who remain faithful to the old king, uh, they undergo horrific persecution and suffering. Uh, they lose all the benefits of citizenship. Uh, their families are broken up. Uh, they lose their jobs. Uh, they're humiliated. They're tortured. They're murdered uh, for remaining loyal to their previous master. So this goes on for some time. It could be years or centuries or, or millennium. Uh, this mistreatment continues. Uh, but one day, the, the good king is going to return. He promises the people, I'm going to return. And that day comes about. Now, what's going to happen in that city? You're going to have two groups of people. You're going to have those who were obedient to the evil, wicked king and those who stayed faithful and, and served that other king when all hope appeared to be lost. They remained faithful to him and withstood the persecutions. Well, that, that's what's happening here. Christ is returning. 
He's pouring out retribution upon those who conquered the city, those who abused the people of God, and he's going to bless those people who remain faithful to him. Now, we're not told in this passage, but uh, you can guess again how they will respond. Out of fear, uh, if, if their king is just, uh, he will return and carry out his righteous judgment upon the evildoers. Uh, the response of the faithful is described by these words, when he comes uh, to be glorified in his saints on that day, and he, that's Jesus, will be marveled at by all those who have believed. Now, the question is, what does this look like when his king returns? Well, we have pictures of it in the New Testament. One of them, as we've just finished uh, hearing Justin preach upon this, is in Revelation 19. Remember the context, what's happened in, in the previous passage? Uh, it says, after these things, I heard someone like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, uh, what happened before this? Well, it was the destruction of Babylon. God comes and, and judges uh, the world's earthly system. It, it's destroyed, it's wiped out, and now he's going to describe what happens to the blessed, to the redeemed. And he says this, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God, because his judgment Judgments are true and righteous, for he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality, immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. That's what God, Paul is saying to the Thessalonians, that God is going to come and he's going to avenge the blood of his bondservants. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who sits on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants who fear him, the small and the great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying. Now, put this, get this idea in your mind. Uh, there's this great multitude standing before the throne of this God, of our God, of Jesus Christ. And their voice, it sounds like many waters. When Geneva and I were in, in Maine last year, uh, we stood on a very small beach on a cliff, maybe 20, 30 feet above the water. And it was a normal day, just you know, the, the ocean lapping up against the, the rocks. And even in that situation, it was hard to hear. If she was more than 20 feet away from me, I had to yell at her for her to hear me. Just normal side-by-side -side conversations took a lot of energy to express ourselves. Imagine mighty waters, the sound of great heaps of water water crashing against those, uh, those granite cliffs, how loud that would be. Or you ever hear a, a peal of thunder? Were you ever close, like within 100 yards of a loud thunderclap? I remember as a child, uh, my, my uncle had a, uh, what we would call a gentleman farm. He went to work each day, but came home, had a couple of cows he milked, a couple of uh, horses he used to ride. And my cousin and I were out playing in one of the fields one day, and it was a tree about me from here uh, to the sound booth away. And it was, we should have been inside, we shouldn't have been outside that day, but a big thunder peal came and, and just smashed a tree right I mean, from here to there away from us. And, and it was fearful to hear the sound of that thunder that close. And that was just one crack that took maybe a fraction of a second. And, and it put fear in our hearts. It was, you could feel uh, the loudness through your bones. That's what's happening here. These people are, are, are crying out so loud that it sounds like thunders, it sounds like waters, a storm of a mighty ocean crashing against the rocks. That's what's happening here. And, and what do they say? Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Now what Paul is talking about when he says to this end, or with this in mind, what he's speaking of is this day right here. 
When this happens is what I am talking about. So with this in mind, this is what is, is shaping my prayer for you. This is what is driving it and governing. This is what is making me pray for you, and it's determining the things that I am praying for you. This great day that Christ comes and he returns to redeem his people, and their great response, hallelujah to the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. That is how the people of God will respond to Christ when he returns. That's described again in these words. Uh, they will be marveled by all those who have believed. Again, that day is on Paul's mind as he offers this prayer to this end uh, to which he prays. Now, the petitions, first petition is this. He says that our God, and that day comes, would count you worthy of your calling. Now, keep in mind here, uh, Paul is looking to the consummation, to the return of Christ in glory, where he will abolish all sin and death and bring his people into his eternal kingdom. And now ask yourself, what is that kingdom going to be like? Will it be a, it'll be a kingdom of peace, a kingdom of holiness, of righteousness, of justice. There'll be no selfishness there, no schisms, no quarreling. It will be a kingdom of joy, a kingdom of glory. Ask yourself, what will you be doing in that eternal kingdom? Well, will it be a vacation? No, you'll be serving him. Throughout all of eternity, we will be serving Christ in his kingdom. Revelation 7.15 says, Those who have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, for this reason they are before the throne of God, and they serve him day and night in his temple. Revelation 22.3, There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him. So we're going to be serving Christ throughout eternity. So we are called to be holy. We are called to peace. We are called to righteousness and justice. We are called to serve. If that is the case, then what does it mean to be considered worthy of his calling right now in this life? Well, it means that we are living in light of what we will be. Ephesians 4.1, Paul says this, Therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I implore you to walk in a manner worthy of what? Of the calling to which you were called. The same calling Paul is talking about here, he's also speaking of in Thessalonians. So you are to live in a manner. Paul implores them. He begs them to walk in a manner worthy of that calling to which you have been called. 1 Peter 10.1, he says this, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. So they are to make certain, they are to be diligent, to make certain of their calling. Some translations uh, use the word election here in the word choosing of you. For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. The question is, well, what are these things? What is Peter talking about that if we practice them, uh, we will make certain our calling? Well, he lists them in verse 5 through 7. Uh, there's diligence, faith, moral excellence or moral virtue, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, and love. Because if you're doing these things, brethren, you are showing yourself to be worthy of the kingdom of God and making your calling and election sure. One commentator says this, 
says, Paul's prayer was that God may count you worthy of his calling. No one deserves to be called by God, referring to his call of salvation. No one merits such grace. Yet God extended his love and call to the Thessalonians to enter into the kingdom of his son through faith. After accepting this call, the believers are compelled to live in a way that is fitting or worthy of such an honor. We are to demonstrate God's transforming grace through our behavior. Let me say that again. We are compelled as believers to live in a way that is fitting or worthy of such an honor. So as we think about what we're going to be in heaven, what is heaven going to be like? What will that eternal kingdom be? And what we will be, what will be our place in it? What will we be like when we are transformed that day into perfect creatures of God with a perfect resurrection body and a perfect soul that is cleansed from all sin? What will we be like? Well, that gives us an idea of what our calling is. And our goal in this life, Paul is praying, he's asking God to do for them, is to make their life consistent now with what they will be when they are transformed and redeemed. Again, compelled to live in a way that is fitting or worthy of such an honor. Now, now think about this. Do you long for the day uh, when there'll be no more sin? When you receive the glorious resurrection body and have your soul perfectly cleansed so that you no longer sin. Is that a day you look forward to? We all should. Then what are you doing now with sin in your life? Are you examining yourself? Are you looking to see what sin is there and how you can, can uh, mortify or deal with that sin? If you're looking forward to that day, then why do you tolerate sin now? That's not living in a way that is consistent to the calling which you were called. Uh, why do you not mortify that sin as God commands us to do? Or are you a, a whiny, constantly complaining person? Or are you going to be that way in heaven? Is heaven going to be a place of whiners who complain about everything, every hardship they complain about? Uh, no. Well, then why are you like that now if that's the way you are? Uh, are you going to be aggressive, ill-tempered, and peevish, uh, belligerent in heaven? Is that what God has called us to be? No, that, that will be gone. So why are we like that now? Why do we tolerate that in our lives and in our hearts? Are you the kind of person who just, you're looking for the next fight, the next disagreement uh, that you can have with someone? Uh, is that what we're called to be? Is that the frame of mind that we will have throughout eternity? No. Well, then why do we deal with that now in our hearts? Why do we tolerate that? These things should be examined. They should be dealt with, prayed for, and used God's means of grace to remove them, to mortify them from our lives. Do you desire the day when there'll be no more schisms, uh, no more battles or divisions between brothers and sisters in Christ? Is that a day that you really look forward to? Then why do you tolerate it now? Why are you not making peace with your brother and sister that you have antagonistics against now? You'll say, well, you know, it's their fault. Uh, it's not my fault. Well, if you're angry at your brother, if you have animosity towards your brother or sister, as long as that animosity exists in your heart towards them, it's your problem. It's there because of you. You're either working to make peace with them or you are forgiving them and moving on and forgetting it. They're not putting that enmity there. You're leaving it there when it's perfectly within your power to remove it, or at least from your end to remove it. Uh, illustration of this, that there's, I'm going for walks, but the Lord 
really put it on my heart to, to get in shape. It takes me like two days to recover from mowing my postage stamp yard nowadays. So I thought, well, I need to really, you know, do something to get in shape. I think I, if I lose 40 pounds, I'll simply be uh, overweight and not obese anymore. So I'm not laying guilt on anybody. This is just me, the way the Lord's dealt with me. So I've been going, going for walks in the afternoon. And uh, you, you notice a lot when you're walking in your neighborhood. One of the things I notice is there, there's a, a lot of rental properties that are popping up. In our, in our neighborhood. And you can tell why, because there's a, they're very transient, these people. And, uh, and if you're a renter, I'm not saying anything bad about you, this, these particular renters. Uh, what, what you'll see is that little strip of grass between the sidewalk and the, the street, be, it'll be lined with, with a big pile of garbage, you know, sometimes 20, 30 feet of nothing but garbage. What happens is, is they move out, they're evicted, they leave all their stuff behind, and then the owner of the property comes and piles all that stuff in the street, and then the garbage comes to pick it up, and they only have a little like two-fingered hook pickup thing that they pick all the stuff up, and it leaves probably 10, 20% of it on the ground. The stuff that can't fit in those little tweezer things is left there. And, so I, I, and, and the new people move in. They don't own a house. They don't care. So it just stays there. And I've seen some where it's been there for six, seven months. And it, it angers me. It, it infuriates me. So I'm walking every day, and I see this, and I'm thinking, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm judging these people living in a house. I just come away from what should be a nice, quiet, peaceful walk angry. But so, well, what can I do? Well, what I'm going to do, and I, I decided this Thursday, so it's not put in practice yet, but what I decided was to, to get a garbage bag. When I go on a walk, take a, a black garbage bag and, and take a little stick with a, a little nail in it and just, as I'm walking, spend five minutes at those places and fill that garbage bag up, leave it there, come back the next day to do something about that garbage. And many times, that is what the Christian life is like. I didn't put that there. It's not my fault, but I'm going to do something to fix it. And that's how the Christian life is. Many times people do things to you that you certainly didn't deserve, that wasn't right by any means, and, and, and you try to make peace with them, and they don't. So what do you do? You've had all this garbage dumped on you. Well, you clean it up and you move on. You pray for that person. Uh, you think good things about them. You, you, you try to minister to them. Maybe you go talk to them and say, hey, how you doing? How's things going? They snub you and walk away. So what? You come back the next day, do the same thing. You pray the week and come back the next day and do the same thing. My point is, it's within your power to fix these situations, to do what you can. That is what we will be like in eternity. We will have no disputes with that person, no uh, difficulties with them. So we strive in this life to remove as many of those difficulties as we can. And many times that means picking up, cleaning up somebody else's garbage that they dumped on you. It's what we do to count ourselves, to consider ourselves worthy of the kingdom of God. Sometimes you just, I always tell my kids this, you know, they'll be fighting about something and if any one of them would stop the fighting, it would be fine. It would end. So I say, one of you has to be the adult in the room and do what is right, and this will be over. And usually both of them at that time would feel guilty and fix the problem. But it only takes one in a battle like this. Uh, the other person can continue their animosity. They can continue their anger. But you can deal with it, at least in your own heart and your attitude and your actions towards them. So we could spend a month of Sundays applying this what it means to live according to the kingdom or be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. But I think you got the idea. We look at our lives, we look at eternity, see what we will be like in that perfect blessed state, in those areas of incongruity, 
we fix. We use the graces God has given us to change those things so that our lives are more in accord with the way that we will live in eternity with Christ. And that is what Paul is doing for these brethren, praying that God would do this to them. And just because he's asking to do this, asking God to intervene and do this, uh, doesn't mean that we become passive and simply sit back and wait for God to do the work. No, this prayer, it should activate us to strive all the more with God to work with him as he works within us to bring about our own salvation. Another commentator says this. says, so in this sense, Paul's requests that the kind of evidence of membership in the kingdom already displayed among the Thessalonians would continue in abundance and further validate God's call in their lives. So Paul knows that they're on this track, that they are becoming more and more conformed to the image or to the, the kingdom of God. But he wants them to continue, this writer says, in abundance and further validate God's call in their lives. It's a lifelong process that ends the day that we die or the day that Christ returns. Now, the, the, that's the first petition. I hope that's clear. Uh, the second petition is a little bit more difficult, a little bit more obscure than the one we just looked at. We've all heard that phrase before, live according to your calling or uh, inconsistent with your calling. But this one is rather, let, let me read it to see what, I, see what I mean. Can make you worthy of your calling, count you worthy of your calling, and fulfill, this is the second petition, fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Repeat that, and fulfill God is doing this. God is the one who is active here, fulfilling this. Fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power. Can a rather strange thing to pray. How many of you heard anybody pray that before? Even remotely like that? I don't think I ever have. So it's an odd phrase, but I think it'll make sense as we unpack it and explain what's happening here. First thing to help is to sort of rearrange the words a little bit. In Greek, you can throw words anywhere. And they, they, they make sense. In English, uh, we have a much more structured language where uh, the position of words, of verbs, and, and pronouns matter a lot more, and it gives us clarity. Um, there are basically two parts of this petition. First, that God would fulfill every desire for goodness. And the second is God would fulfill every work of faith by his power. So there's these desires for goodness, whatever that is, and there are these uh, works of faith, whatever those are, that Paul wants fulfilled in these people's lives by the power of God. Now there's only one verb here, and that is the word fulfill, and it has the idea of something that's already happening that is going to be brought to its fruition. And there's a prepositional clause with power that appears at the very end. In fact, both of the verb and the prepositional clause with power apply to both parts of the petition so we could phrase it as such to give it more clarity. It says, by his power, that's by God's power, may God fulfill every desire or purpose of yours, and by his power may he also fulfill every act prompted or brought about by your faith. So there are these good purposes of the Thessalonians, and there are these acts of faith that Paul is praying for, that they would be fulfilled and there would be a, a power uh, uh, available to them to bring about this fulfillment of these two things. Now, what is Paul talking about here? I think the best way is to just jump into some examples and, and make it clear that way. Uh, let, let's take two. 
Uh, two, uh, two regular ones, and I'll give an example of something that happened in my own life. Uh, let's say you come to Christ out of a, a particular community of people, uh, Muslims, Catholics, uh, a cult like Jehovah's Witnesses, or, or perhaps even the, uh, the LGBT community. Uh, and God, you're, you're radically saved out of these people. And God gives you a, a heart uh, for those people and convinces you because maybe of your connection with that community, maybe there's a special sensitivity you have or a knowledge of them you have or a particular love that, that you have a strong desire to bring the gospel to these people. Now, what would you call that? What would that not be a, a, a gospel desire? Well, that's what Paul's talking about here, a desire to do good that springs from the gospel that has been given to you, that has transformed your heart. But your actions wouldn't stop there, would they? If this was a truly good gospel desire, it wouldn't stop there, would it? What would you do next? Well, you'd find a way to reach these people, wouldn't you? You would perform acts of faith to find ways to actually reach these people. Your desire would carry through into acts where you took a step in faith to actually bring about the desire. Your desire is to see these people come to know Christ. So now you're going to do something in faith to bring those people to Christ. You could go maybe and stand on a street corner handing out tracts uh, and maybe uh, contacting your old friends and sharing the gospel with them, going out to coffee with them. Uh, it may be having a Bible study in your home if you're still within that community of people that you lived. You may have a Bible study there and invite the members of that community to join. There are, are many, many things, many acts of faith uh, that these good desires will prompt for you to bring about that goal of bringing these people to Christ. This is the idea that Paul's praying for. Uh, another example, let's say uh, you're a member of, of, of Russ Leonard's small group, uh, and you find yourself deeply blessed by the study, by the fellowship, uh, by the prayers, and all that happens in that meeting is a, a deep blessing for you, and, and you want to share that blessing with other people. You want to do what, Rice is do, what Russ has done for you. We could uh, talk about Russ Rice or anybody who has a, a small group. You, want, you desire to see this carried out in your own home, to see people blessed like you were in their home, that, that happened in your home. So is that not a good desire? Is that not a gospel desire? We would say, yes, it is. That's the first thing Paul's talking about here. Now, it wouldn't end there, would it? What else would happen? Well, you would take the steps necessary to carry that desire out. You would go uh, to Russ and say, hey, Russ, you know, how did you become a, a small group leader? Now, what do I have to do to become a small group leader? And if there's training, if there's something you have to do, if there's study, then you would go forth and do that. That would be an act of faith to fulfill this desire for good that you have. Uh, when, I, when I was a, a new believer, I just uh, found a church that I was going to, a church that I was at for the, the early part of my, my faith when I went to seminary. And um, I wanted to, to learn how to pray in public. I never prayed in public before. So I, I went to the Wednesday night prayer meeting, and I still, when I go to that church, I can still see the seat that I sat, and it's still there uh, 35, 40 years later. And we went around, and, and it was my turn to pray. And I, I started praying, and nothing came out of my mouth. It just these gurgles. I, I didn't know what to say. I was so petrified and scared that nothing really came out. And it was, we didn't have uh, air conditioning in the churches there. And so it was kind of a warm late May day. And so I'm just sweating profusely, trying to think words to say, and, and I couldn't. And uh, an elder gentleman put his arm around me and just kind of said a prayer, just prayed. Like I would do if I had the voice and the ability to do it. And now you can imagine that was a, a desire that I had 
carried out in an act of faith that utterly failed. And it would have been easy just to say, well, I'm not going to do that again. But no, the next week I went and prayed, and it was a little bit better. And then I went the week after that, and it was a little bit better, until I could confidently stand up and pray in front of the people of God with confidence and clarity. Now, there acts of faith. And sometimes those acts of faith are, are stopped. Uh, they're, they're, uh, there's impediments there, but we continue through hoping, praying that God will fulfill that desire that you have that is being carried out by acts of faith. So there are many examples that we could use as illustrations of this. Now keep in mind here, uh, the desires, they're not sovereign and are not infallible. So they need to be tempered by your natural abilities and by the situation in your church. Let's say you have a strong desire to preach and to proclaim the gospel to the masses, uh, but you have a major speech impediment. Uh, you cannot get a word out without five minutes of stuttering, uh, then maybe you shouldn't be a preacher. Maybe there's another way for you to bless the people of God, to glorify Christ to satisfy that desire that you have. But when Spurgeon uh, examined ministerial candidates for preaching at his, his college, his seminary, uh, he would line them up in a row and look at their chests. And he could tell, these, again, these are the days when there's no amplification. He could tell by their chest, if they had a concave chest uh, with, with no lung capacity, he concluded that they weren't preachers of God. No matter how faithful they were, no matter how diligent, if they couldn't project their voice past the second row of a church, then they had no business being in the pulpit. And he made a comment that, look, if God wanted you to be a preacher, if he gave you that mouth, that brain, and he could have given you the chest to do it. So there are probably, a number of people are probably disappointed by that, but the reality is what we, we have these desires for good. They can't always be fulfilled. When I was at seminary, one of my uh, preaching professors told me in the early days of DTS, uh, the preaching classes, again, before amplification back in the 30s and 40s where you could go into a church and there may not be electricity, let alone a microphone. The way they conducted the preaching classes was they found two adjacent classrooms with a, a wall between them. And the class got in one end at the back of the class and the preacher got at the other class at the back of that class. And he had to preach and he had to be understood by those people on the other side of the wall in the back of that class before they would okay him for preaching. Now, that sounds harsh or cruel, but it's the reality of the situation. In those days, if your voice couldn't be projected, then people couldn't hear you, and you weren't qualified in their mind to be a preacher of God. When I was uh, involved in Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, there was a, I think we were assigned to these groups of four or five people that we hung out with and prayed with, and there was a, a young man there, a very faithful, very godly man, but he had a very uh, chronic case of palsy, where, where he could barely speak. Very difficult understanding this man. And God bless him. He was a wonderful, godly man. But he had it in his mind that he was going to be a preacher of the gospel. That he was going to stand up before people and preach to them and lay out the gospel for them in a public manner. And the people around him encouraged him with that. Yeah, God's going to bless you. God will give you that. God will grant you that ability, that desire of your heart. And it just broke my heart to see that. And we're at supper one night. And I very graciously brought it up. I said, you know, brother, you know, I understand your desire, but you think maybe because of your physical disabilities that God has something else for you, another method of glorifying him and ministering to him. And man, you'd have thought that I, I tortured the guy. It, it, was, it, it went downhill from there. And uh, the supper did not go well, let's put it that way. And it was just being honest. 
And we have to have that honesty when we look at these desires, how we're going to fulfill them. Uh, if it is something that we're able to do, if you want to be a preacher, but your, your uh, idea of deep reading is a dear Ann Landers, a dear Abby, you may not be a preacher. Let's say that. Um, they have to be tempered by the situation in your church as well. For example, um, when I came here, I really wanted to work with the high school kids. I have a desire to work with kids. I love teaching Mark's Sunday school class. Anytime he offers that to me, I'm ready to do it. I love those kids. I love teaching them. And that's what I wanted to do when I came here. So I went to a, a couple SDG classes just to see what was happening. And I looked, I saw what was happening. Paul and, and Mark were doing a, a wonderful job with the kids. They, they were blessed by what was happening. Uh, they were doing a great job. You could tell that, that God was with them in their work. So I said, okay, there must be something else. That was a desire for good, but it was tempered by the situation that you had two other people doing a perfectly good job at it. So there must be something else for me to do, some other way to fulfill my desire for good, another acts of faith that I could perform. So they have to be tempered by the situation in your church. If you want to come here to this church and be a, a minister of music and lead our church in music and, and bless them with your abilities and how you understand worship and your gifts, well, we've got that covered. It may not be that desire that you that is fulfilled at this church. You want to be a, a preacher of the gospel and ascend to this pulpit each week and, and preach the word to Cornerstone? Well, we've got that covered as well. So there must be other ways for you to fulfill those desires, those by prompt, prompted by acts of faith. It may be that you are a preacher. It's just going to take decades for you to develop that gift and be able to express it. Many times these things take, take years and years to actually be able to express themselves. Again, they're one act of faith, one step of faith after another until you achieve it. That's what Paul is praying for here. You may take theology classes, you may need to learn original languages, you may have to read some heavy theology, but it can be done, but again, th other things have to be considered. These desires don't, are not, not centered around the church either. If you're a parent, uh, your desires should probably focus on your children, raising your children. Uh, that should be your primary concern. There's other things you can do in a church, I'm sure, but many times these desires are not necessarily as church-focused as we would like because we have other desires for good that need to be done, mainly the care of our families. Or you can look at Emily Palmer with Children in the double digits who is in charge of the, uh, the bottle drive for the pregnancy center. So it can be done, but it's difficult. The family has to be first. So there needs to be a hierarchy, in a sense, of these desires and these acts of faith. Again, keep in mind that the, these desires for good, uh, they come from a redeemed heart. They're given to you when you were born again. They're prompted and produced by the Holy Spirit who lives within each of us. Before I was saved, I could care less about teaching didn't want to teach. If you asked me to get up and, and teach people, I'd have said it's the farthest thing from my mind. But when God gave me the desire to study, uh, to learn, to explain the scriptures, I saw no, there, there's something, a desire God has given me here. And many times other people pointed it out to me and said, no, that is something that you need to do when I had no desire to do it. So the church can even encourage one another in developing those gifts and carrying out those gifts, those desires and the acts of faith that are prompted by them. One commentator says this, the good purposes and acts prompted by faith come from, again, a regenerate believer. They are consistent desires and actions that issue from faith, wholeness of mind, spirit and body, founded in a harmonious belief and life. Let me read that last phrase again. These are consistent desires and actions that issue from faith, 
wholeness of mind, spirit, and body founded in a harmonious belief and life. And Paul seeks from God uh, not just the presence of these actions, not just that they would exist and be fulfilled, but he also says that there is a power of God for us. He prays that God would grant them his power, that these things would be fulfilled. Now think about that, that all that we do in this church, whether it's Justin preaching, whether it's Cody leading us in worship, whether it's the elders uh, sitting around wrestling with a difficult issue between believers, uh, whether it's the deacons and uh, the endless work that they do, whether it's the small groups, uh, the gr uh, home group leaders, whether it's you in your parenting, whether it's those who work in a nursery, uh, those who counsel, uh, those who collect bottles for the pregnancy center, uh, there is a power given to us to fulfill every single one of those desires for good and acts of faith. That is ours, and that is what Paul is praying for. God, grant them the power. All the works that people are doing in a church, and a church like ours should be and is a beehive of activity. Uh, desires for good being done by different types of people, different interests, different background, being carried out by acts of faith that are as numerous as the mountains. And Paul is praying that there would be a power to every one of you to fulfill that desire for good and those acts of faith, that they would have their fruition. And what is the goal? What are they directed towards? Well, Paul says this in the end of his prayer. He says this, so that, this is the purpose for the prayer. This is what all these things are directed for, whether it's you be made worthy of your calling, whether it's these acts of faith be fulfilled. It's for this end that our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you and him according to the grace of our Lord, our God, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So all that those works that you do, all those acts of faith that are prompted by, by true gospel desires, what is the end of them all? To glorify Christ. Not that you're adding to his glory, but that through him, through you, his glory is being manifest. And that's the end at which we all live, is it not? To glorify him. So that everything we do is in some way a reflection, a shining forth, a manifestation of the glory that he has possessed through all of eternity. And that's what Paul is praying for. Now, I don't have a whole, I think I've had applications throughout this. So I don't want to end with a bunch of applications, but just a couple things. One is, is examine your life. I know people that are Christians, been Christians for 20 years, 30 years, and, and never spend time examining their life. They, they hear the word preached, they read their Bible, but to lay out their life, lay out their actions. You have a conversation with somebody, and that, that conversation turns sour. Look at yourself. What, what have you done? Was it you? Uh, there's some sin you're struggling with that you can't seem to, to, to get out of your heart. Do you just let it go, or do you continue wrestling? There are people who, there's no sense of self-reflection looking at themselves and comparing themselves to Christ or to something else to see if they are worthy of living towards him. And look at yourself. Are you living in a way that is worthy of what we will be in heaven? If there's something there that's not, then use the graces God gave you to change that, to remove that. He's given us grace to do these things. And he's given us a church, he's given us preaching, he's given us friends. Uh, we have counselors here now who can help you work at it with God to make yourself worthy first by examining yourself to see where the incongruity exists. And secondly, uh, find something in the church to do. If, if there's a desire that you have, uh, pray about it, seek it, 
seek God's counsel, seek his will, and, and step out in acts of faith to perform that. If it's coming to an elder and talking to them, if it's going to a deacon or talking to them or another brother, we're supposed to be a group of people who are zealous for good works. And that's shown by exactly what Paul is talking about here. Gospel desires uh, that are truly rooted in a love for Christ and a love for his people carried out by acts of faith. Be assured that when we have these, that God will bless us. God will give us whatever power is necessary to fulfill and carry out those desires. And again, the great purpose is that Christ be glorified. They're not our personal desires or fulfillments being brought about. It's Christ himself being glorified, his glory being reflected in you. And no matter how minuscule that work is, no matter how insignificant it may seem to us or in light of other things that happen, Christ is still glorified by that. And he is honored by it and you are blessed through it. Let's pray. Our Father, we are, are thankful for the love that you show your people. We're grateful for the mercy that you give us, for the hope that you give us, for the strength, Father, that we have uh, through your word. And we pray that you would help all of us, Lord, to, to live a life uh, worthy of the gospel, of the calling to which we are called. We know that we have your abundant grace at our disposal. We have Christ who died for us, who forgave us. Uh, we have your Holy Spirit who lives in us. We have your word. We have your church. Uh, we have one another, Father, uh, to help us live this way, a way that pleases you, a way that honors you. So bless your people, Father. Let your spirit come and, and work in us in a powerful way, and let your word be, be true to us and active in our lives. We thank you for these things. In Christ's name, amen.